Let us turn this morning in the Word of God to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 7. Luke 7. I want to begin reading at verse 36. You'll find that on page 1099. And read all the way down to chapter 8, verse 3. Luke seven thirty-six to chapter 8, verse 3. Let us give careful attention to the reading of God's Word. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they both, or when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you go in peace. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. That's the reading of God's Word. Do you love the Lord Jesus? I imagine that's a question that might make some of you squirm. What do you mean, do I love the Lord Jesus? 
Well, I don't mean, do you know about the Lord Jesus, that he who was the eternal Son of God became man and dwelt amongst us, died the death of a sinner, was raised on the third day, and now is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for his people? I don't mean that. Nor do I mean, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? The question I'm asking is, do you love the Lord Jesus? If you know the Scriptures at all, you'll know that this is a very important question to ask. When our Lord Jesus reinstated his disciple Peter after his repeated denial of him, asked him this question, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And the Apostle Paul, in his ending of his letter, his farewell to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 23, said this, that if anyone has no love for the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. This is one of the key characteristics of a Christian. This is one of the telltale signs that a man and woman or a boy or girl knows the Lord Jesus. They love him. And I think this is particularly important for us to follow through with this in our context because of the way we are. We're a Reformed church. And as a Reformed church, we place a high emphasis on the doctrines of the Bible. We love the confessions. We defend the faith. We contend for them. We teach them in our pulpit and in our classrooms. We are in convinced that right doctrine is important. And we're also a church that loves the law. We want the law read. We want the law preached. We want to be obedient people, at least in the way that we understand obedience. But it is important for us to have right doctrine and to have right living. But may I say that it was also important to the Pharisees to have right doctrine and right living. They were known for their theological care and for their scrupulousness with which they tried to obey the law of God. And yet, if you were to be with a Pharisee, you wouldn't hear of him having a broken heart because of sin, or you wouldn't hear him display the joy and blessing of sins forgiven. No, their religion was metallic. It was cold, mechanical. It was external. It ticked all the boxes, but there was little life and vibrancy and joy and love in their religion. And it's possible for us, in fact, it's very possible for us to have that truncated, that shortened view of the Christian life as well. A life that prides itself on right doctrine and right living, but is devoid of love. The inner life of the Christian is not often discussed amongst ourselves. The joys and sorrows, the anguish and the elation. We don't hear one another speak often about the Lord Jesus Christ, how lovely he is, how wonderful a Savior, and what an astonishing friend. You just 
listen to the conversations in the foyer after church or when we meet together. It's not often that we speak about our love for the Lord Jesus. Sometimes we rarely speak about the Lord Jesus at all. We leave that kind of emotional talk to the evangelicals who are all about emotion. We are going to stick with the truth of God's Word and obedience to His law. And yet again, I say, the key characteristic of a Christian that the Lord Jesus points out in this passage is that he or she has love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that should be our desire as well. We want right doctrine. Of course we do. We love the Scriptures, but we love them because they point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to obey God's law. We love the law of God, but we love the law of God because it's a way for us to please the Lord. And we want preaching to be faithful to the Word of God. We want it to be accurate. We want it to be careful. But we also want it to move us and grip us and compel us to love the Lord Jesus all the more. If you look at this passage, you could summarize it using the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, that if we have right doctrine and right living, but do not have love, we are nothing. The first thing I want to do this morning as we open up this passage is to see the contrast that there is between the woman and the Pharisee. The Bible often uses contrasts in order to drive home a point, and so there's the sacrifice of Cain and the sacrifice of Abel. There's the reign of King Saul, and there's the reign of King David. And here, these contrasts are important as well. In fact, our Lord Jesus, in verses 44 through 46, makes the contrast explicitly between the Pharisee and the woman. So what is it that the Pharisee did? First of all, let's highlight what he did do. We read there in verse 36 that one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. Now, this is a kindness, of course. And it wasn't a quick snack or a skip-the-dishes meal that you could order in. No, this was a feast because we read that they were reclining at table. That is, children, that uh, the Jews, when they had an important feast, they would not sit at the table on chairs like we do, but they would lay on couches with their head held up by their left hand and would eat with their right hand. That's the kind of meal it was. It was a feast. And this Pharisee had invited Jesus to that. And then later on, when Jesus says to him, I have something to say to you, he's very respectful, and he says, say it, teacher, giving Jesus that honorific title. That's what he did. But let's notice as well what he did not do. And this is important for us to understand that our devotion to God is not always seen in what we do. It's also seen in what we do not do, or our lack of devotion to God is seen in what we did not do. And so what did he not do? Well, Jesus says when Jesus entered his house, the rich man, the Pharisee rather, gave him no water for his feet. When Jesus arrived, 
he showed him no affection with a kiss. And he says, when I arrived, you did not anoint my head with oil. That's what the Pharisee did and didn't do. Well, what about the woman? Like the Pharisee, she is introduced to us in a nameless way. We're told that she's a woman of the city. We're also told she was a sinner, but we're not told what her sin was. Well, evidently, she had heard where Jesus was having dinner that night and went to that place. Now, that would be really strange if that happened in our homes. Imagine, children, if you were sitting down for a Thanksgiving dinner, and all of a sudden the door opened, and a a host of people that you didn't even know uh, came in. and, And they didn't sit at the table with you. They just stood around the outside of the walls and watched you and listened to your conversation. That would seem really peculiar to us and strange, but it seems like that was common in Jesus' day, that meals would often be held in the courtyards of the house, which were open to the street, and and people would just come in and stand around the perimeter of the room and listen to the conversation and watch what was being said. Well, this woman heard where Jesus was. She got the address. She Googled it, and she went to the house, and there Jesus was. So learning where Jesus was, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, a file of fragrance, and then she stood behind him at his feet. Remember, the children, our children, remember that the feet would be sticking away from the table so that she would have easy access to Jesus' feet. And she stands there weeping. Then as she weeps, she begins to wet his feet with her tears wiped them with the hair of her head, kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. That's what the woman did. Now, it's obvious to us that there's a contrast in the way the Lord Jesus is treated by the Pharisee and by this woman. But what is less obvious is why the Pharisee treated her differently than the woman treated Jesus, or, or why the woman treated Jesus differently than the Pharisee. That's not so obvious. But our Lord does give us the answer to that question when he tells the parable that's recounted for us in verses 41 and 42. Jesus says that a certain money letter had, the money lender had two debtors, One owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. You can see there's a significant uh, difference between the two. Neither one could pay, and the moneylender canceled the debt of both. Said to the man with 50 denarii debt, it's forgiven. Says to the man with 500 denarii debt, it's forgiven at all. And then Jesus asked Simon this question, now which of them will love him more? The answer is obvious, isn't it? Though it doesn't come across as obvious to Simon, he says, I suppose, because I think he understood what Jesus was saying, but wasn't that ready to admit it. He says, I suppose, the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. The man whose 500 denarii debt was canceled would have been elated and would love the moneylender more than the one who owed only 50 denarii. 
And Jesus said, you're right. The one who was forgiven much will love more. And so you see, there's the difference between the Pharisee and the woman. The Pharisee treated Jesus the way he did because he didn't love the Lord Jesus. In fact, for all of his outward respect for Jesus, will you please come and have dinner for me? In his heart of hearts, he disdained the Lord Jesus. You can see this in verse 39. Now the Pharisee who had invited him, when he saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who or what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You see, he has no love for the Lord Jesus. He has disdain. Jesus isn't who he says he was, is. If he were really something, if he were a prophet, he would never have permitted this. What kind of man is this? He disdained the Lord Jesus in his heart. And that's why when Jesus came, he didn't give him the courtesy of water to wash the dust off his feet. That's why he didn't kiss the Lord Jesus when he saw him, because he wasn't that happy to see him and to welcome him into his home. And that's why he didn't give him oil or anoint his head, because for all of his outward respectability, inviting Jesus and saying, say it, teacher, in his heart of hearts, he had no love for the Lord Jesus. He disdained him. And the woman, on the other hand, well, she had great love for the Lord Jesus, In fact, Jesus says as much in verse 47, for she loved much, and that love for the Lord Jesus exploded in this public display of affection. It was because of her love for the Lord Jesus that she crashed the party. It was because she loved the Lord Jesus that she would do what was socially unacceptable, that she would let down her hair. It was because she loved the Lord Jesus that she would kiss his feet when even washing the feet was not something a Jew would do to a fellow Jew. That was usually left for the slaves to do. But this woman kisses his feet and wipes them with her hair and anoints them with ointment. It's because she loved. In fact, it's because she loved much. That's why she was willing to do what she did. And it is love for the Lord Jesus Christ that will always motivate service to him. That's why I read into the next chapter because you see there in chapter 8, the verses 1 through 3, that the disciples traveled with Jesus, but there are also women who traveled with Jesus women who traveled with them, and women who provided for them financially out of their means. And the women who did so were the ones who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. That is, they had been blessed by the Lord Jesus, and they loved him for it. And loving the Lord Jesus, they served him. It is always love for the Lord Jesus that will give you the proper motivation to serve him and to be crazy or considered crazy even in your service of him. I'm not saying that there aren't other reasons why people do the right thing when they do it. There are people 
who come to church twice for worship, not because the Lord Jesus is there or because in the preaching of the gospel they hear the voice of their good shepherd calling to them. It's not because they gather with the Lord's blood-bought people whom they love as well. It's not because there the Lord promises to meet and to bless them. That's not why they come to church. They come to church twice because that's the way we do it. That's the way it's always done. And it's important for me to do it for my kids because we know that oncers in the generations to come become nuncers. They do the right thing. They gather for worship, but they don't do it out of love for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a problem. Or think about uh, the push in our federation to be more involved in missions and evangelism. And I concur with that desire. We should be on fire for the gospel of the Lord Jesus to proclaim his name among the nations and in our neighborhoods. But I'm not sure that the way they try to motivate us is always helpful to always remind us of the importance of it, to guilt us because we don't do what we ought to do. What is it that will move a church to witness to her neighbors in the day-to-day life? What will move a church to give of their young men and young women to missions and to the ministry of the gospel? It is love for the Lord Jesus and a desire that his name be made known among the nations. This is, this is what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians. He says, uh, I'm willing to be considered out of my mind. Why? Because the love of Christ controls me. I want to make Christ known. And if it means I bear ridicule and scorn, so be it. But I want his name to be magnified among the nations because the love of Christ controls me. Or what is it that will enable you to shut off your computer because there's things there that you should not see? Or to close these romantic books that bring you no spiritual edification? Or to stop gossiping? or to stop desecrating the Lord's day, or to stop sinning, what is it that will stop you from sinning? It's not the law of God. It's not that when we sin and someone points it out to us, our answer is not usually, oh, I didn't know that that was a sin. It's not the law of God that will stop us from sinning. But it's love for the Lord Jesus. A love that wants to please him, a love that wants to be like him in full devotion to all the commandments of God. Love is what made the difference between the Pharisee and the woman. In fact, Jesus is saying to the Pharisee, the reason you treated me the way you did is because you love little, or perhaps because you don't love at all. And the reason the woman treated me the way she did is because she loved much. Love for the Lord Jesus is the key characteristic of the Christian. Well, how are you going to get this love 
for the Lord Jesus. Well, as you read through this passage, including the parable that our Lord Jesus told, love for the Lord Jesus flows out of knowing him as the one who has forgiven you of your sins. It's tempting when you read a passage like this to say uh, that the woman is the main point or the Pharisee is the main point, but, but that would be to misunderstand the Scriptures because the Scriptures always point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's always the main point. And you see that in this passage as well, that it's the Pharisee who says, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So, so the Pharisee puts the emphasis on the Lord Jesus. And then the, the woman does as well because of the way she treats the Lord Jesus. And, and then the table guests in verse 49, they say among themselves, who is this? Who is this Jesus who even forgives sins? So it's Jesus who is the center of this passage, and it's knowing who Jesus is as the forgiver of sins that will compel you to love the Lord Jesus. This woman knew this. It's probably not her first encounter with the Lord Jesus. She had probably met him somewhere and had heard of who he was and had embraced him at least in her heart, confessed him as her Savior. This love is a response to her knowing Jesus and putting her faith in him. This woman understood who Jesus was, that he was the great forgiver. And we ought to know that more. It's not that the Old Testament didn't speak about God forgiving the sins of his people. No, that's one of the big themes when God introduces himself to Moses in Exodus 34, he says, The Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, the Lord who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who forgives the iniquity of his people. Of course, the Old Testament scriptures knew that God was a forgiving God. And there were some suggestions in the Old Testament that the forgiveness would happen through substitution. That's why there was this ritual sacrifices where the sinner would place his hand on the head of the animal that was to be killed. We knew in the Old Testament that forgiveness would come by substitution. We knew that forgiveness would come by imputation, that the sins would be transferred from the guilty to someone else. That was the emphasis and the laying on of the hands. It wasn't just that you were confessing your sins. It was that you were transferring the guilt of your sin to that animal, and the animal then would die in your place. And we knew that the Lord would lay the iniquity of us all upon his suffering servant. The Old Testament declared that. But who would have thought how grand it would all turn out to be as we now see after the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, there's substitution. God substitutes himself for sinners. It's a marvelous thing. Yes, there's imputation. There is the transfer of guilt that all the sins of God's people are transferred to the head of our Lord Jesus Christ. As, as Goodwin says, 
our sins like streams and rivers all flow to the ocean that was Christ. And here is the holy, sinless Son of God being considered the guiltiest sinner this world has ever known. What a shock of amazement must have come upon our Lord Jesus when he who always strove to do the will of his Father and was innocent of every infraction of God's law would suddenly be the one who bears the sins of his world upon his shoulders. What a marvelous Savior the Lord Jesus is. What a marvelous forgiver. Who would ever have dreamed that the way that forgiveness would be granted was that God himself would take upon himself the sins of the rebels and that God would curse God condemn his only begotten son in the place of sinners. Who would ever have dreamed of that? It's marvelous. But it's only sinners who know that it's marvelous. No, it's only those who know they're sinners who know that that's marvelous. That's why the Pharisee had no love for the Lord Jesus. There was nothing really impressive about him. He was popular, of course. Perhaps that's why he wanted him over for dinner. But he never was astonished at who the Lord Jesus is and who the Lord Jesus was as the grand forgiver. Why? Well, because it was the woman who was the sinner. (laughs) If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. The implication is, I'm not. And he was, of course. He was a sinner. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short of what God requires of us. But he didn't know that about himself. And because he didn't know that about himself, there was nothing impressive about the Lord Jesus, nothing attractive, nothing that would draw from him love and affection and devotion and joy. But the woman, oh, she knew she was a sinner. In fact, she knew that she had many sins, as the Lord Jesus points out in verse 47. And that's why she loved the Lord Jesus. She had gone out to him in faith. We're told that in verse 50, your faith has saved you, go in peace. She had, she had seen herself as she was, and she had come to the Lord Jesus and recognized in him that he was the great forgiver, the one who would take her vile, filthy, wicked sins from her and forgive her. And she saw that in him, and she loved him for it. She loved him and was willing to publicly display that affection by what she did at Simon the Pharisee's house. It's love for the Lord Jesus that will compel you to do that. And it's knowing Jesus as the one who saves us from our sins that will compel you to love him. So here's the question that I started with this morning. Do you love the Lord Jesus? Do you love the Lord Jesus so much that his word is precious, that his worship is a joy, that his people, bought by his precious blood, 
are precious to you as well, that his law is your joy and delight. Do you love the Lord Jesus? And I said, uh, that question might make some of us squirm. It might make many of us, maybe all of us, squirm to, to one degree or another. I can imagine that there are some who say, if I'm really honest, I don't actually love the Lord Jesus. I'm not disrespectful towards him. <laughs> I'm here, aren't I? But if you're asking me if I would love the Lord Jesus and if I would willingly display such affection to the Lord Jesus as this woman did, no, I can't say. I can't say that I love him. Well, then I I urge you. Remember what Paul said. If anyone has no love for the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. I I urge you to to look to the Lord Jesus, to see him as he is, the great Savior of sinners. And ask God to give you such a weight of your own sin and iniquity and transgressions that that you will cling to this Lord Jesus as your only Savior and Redeemer. And then love him. But I think it makes us squirm as well, we who love the Lord Jesus, because when I ask you that question, do you love the Lord Jesus, your response is, not enough. I wish I loved him more. He deserves more love. I should be more affectionate to him. I should love his law, his word, his people, his worship, prayer. I should love that all more than I do. I do love the Lord Jesus. It's like, it's like Simon Peter when, when Jesus said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he's, yes, Lord. Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Simon, do you love me? You know, Lord. You know all things. You know that I love you. And And you're saying this morning, yes, I do love the Lord Jesus, but the fact that I love him so little is my sin, and it's my sorrow. I wish I loved him more. Well, the Lord Jesus would say, just come to me again. Just look at me, will you? See me for who I am and all of my grace and kindness and compassion and tenderness for sinners. And confess your sin, even the sin of not loving me as much as you ought to. You can be sure that I will freely forgive. Your many sins, I will forgive them all. And then you will love me more. The center of the Scriptures is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is always my goal in preaching, not just that I would hold Christ before you as the one who is altogether grand and glorious. But my goal is that you would be moved, would be gripped, that you'd be humbled, that you'd be broken, that you would be elated, that you would be glad, that you would be joyful in Christ, and that you would love him all the more. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, you know that we love you. Oh, for grace to love you more. Open our eyes, we pray, to see ourselves and to see the Savior, that we might worship you, adore you, that we would be absolutely enthralled with you 
and live our lives for your praise and glory. We pray for those who have no love for the Lord Jesus Christ and who are therefore in a precarious situation. We ask you that you would draw them to the Lord Jesus, that they may be astonished that God became man and died for sinners so that sinners might know God and love him. Pour out your spirit, we pray upon us, he who has been commissioned to glorify the Lord Jesus and to take the things of Christ and reveal them to us. May we be known as a congregation of your people who love your truth, who love your law, but above all, who love the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. In his name we pray. Amen.